We are not to engage with the world in the war it wants to fight. We are to engage with the world in the way Jesus wants them to understand who he is and where there's forgiveness and pain. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and our guest today is my longtime friend and radio colleague, Joe Battaglia. I'm looking forward to presenting our conversation to you about the politically incorrect Jesus, and we'll get started in just a moment. Our big news this week is the release of the Android version of our First Person smartphone app. Now, along with the iPhone app, Android users can conveniently listen to our program anytime. Look for these new apps in both the Apple and Google Play stores and take our interviews with you on the go. And, of course, you can still listen to any past interview on our website as well. They're all archived at firstpersoninterview.com. Our guest today, Joe Battaglia, is founder and president of the media company Renaissance Communications. Joe and I have been involved in many radio projects through the years, including just a couple of months ago as we broadcast from the Luis Palau City Fest event in New York. So after years of working together behind the scenes, I've asked Joe to join me here to talk about his book, The Politically Incorrect Jesus, subtitled Living Boldly in a Culture of Unbelief. Well, as a broadcaster and even as a journalist, which is my training and background, and I've done a number of things in that field as well through the years, I have become increasingly alarmed, might you say, or disappointed at the politically correct thinking that has pervaded our mindset in society. Um, And I say that because uh, I find it intellectually dishonest at best. Uh, It often asks us to assent to things that we don't believe in and to believe in things that aren't even true. And so uh, more and more as I see this unfolding in our society, I say, uh, well, what does this mean to me as a Christian? How do I engage culture, remain true to who I am as a believer, don't compromise what I believe, yet try to remain the kind of individual that people would want to be around um, and who would model Christ best as a, uh, as a winsome follower of him? And so what I did was go back into Scripture and um, identify the places where I think Jesus was also confronted by the politically correct police of his day. Mm-hmm. Not much has changed. And I want to draw some parallels uh, for us, tell a lot of personal stories that I think help uh, shape that for people. Uh, so I figured, well, now's the time to do it. And, uh, and I felt uh, it was appropriate time and um, I decided to write the book. Yeah. Well, I'm sure glad you did, and we'll go a little deeper on that today. But can you pull out one of those Jesus examples from the New Testament that uh, illustrate what sure. you're talking about? Well, I think the one that everybody is familiar with, I'll start there, of course, uh, is the woman caught in adultery. The politically correct police of his day brought her to him, and they only had one thing in mind, condemnation. You see, one of the telltale signs of the politically correct agenda is that there's very little compassion. It's all about condemnation. And I think when you begin to see that in a culture, and I think we're seeing that more and more and more, very little compassion, everything is condemning, everything is strident. Um, that's one of the signs that we're really moving far, far away from the model of who Christ is in our life and how we're supposed to be like him. And so he brings 
uh, to that situation a whole different concept and a whole different response than the politically correct police of his day thought he would. Mm-hmm. He shows, number one, compassion to her. And again, like I said, the politically correct agenda only offers condemnation. Jesus turns it around and begins to show compassion. I also think that he might have shed a tear for her and her situation. You know, our good buddy Steve Brown says that righteousness without tears is arrogance. Mm. And Wayne, I think that uh, the world has seen too much of our righteousness and too few of our tears. Um, And then Jesus offers her something that no one can offer, forgiveness. He leads her to the foot of the cross where he died for her, and that's the place we should lead everyone else. Because when you cross by, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be the most righteous person on earth, or you could be the most aberrant personality anywhere. You could be the uh, wealthiest individual. You could be the most poverty-stricken. Everyone is on the level playing field that the cross provides. Everyone is the same. Uh, No one is greater because he's the president of anything, and no one is lesser because he, you know, maybe uh, is the local janitor or even someone who may have nothing in the world. Uh, everyone is the same. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, that brings us to the point where uh, Jesus uh, brings her to the foot of the cross. She is then on the same level as the people who condemn her. There is no longer any distinction. And I believe he then has the authority and the uh, opportunity to put his arm around her and say, go and sin no more. I think oftentimes the Church likes to start there, rather than starting with the compassion, showing the tears, offering the forgiveness by going with that individual to the foot of the cross and showing them how Jesus would love them in such a way as to die for them. And I think if we did that, that would show the world a lot more. Yeah, and I don't need to tell you that it's easier said than done. Um, especially, you know, I know that this political correctness existed in Jesus' day, but you have to admit that it really has ramped up in our day. And um, I mean, how do we how do we get heard? How even our even our compassion is misunderstood sometimes. Well, I think the point, of course, is that yes, even compassion is understood, and I don't think we can. Um, we can worry too much about the results, because then that puts it into an atmosphere of, I can't control that. But I can control how I respond as a Christ follower. And that's why I think that if we begin to model the kind of modeling that Jesus would, was like, like in this particular story, I think there might be a different response. Because I think people would, would, would see that it's not a matter of condemnation. I think the world responds to us based on what they think happens during condemnation, uh, but they've not seen, like I said, those tears or that compassion. Um, and so I, I just think that's one way to do it. Um, I think that's the way that uh, enables people to see more of who Jesus is and less of us. Mm-hmm. And I think... A, 
the part of the problem has been that they've seen too much of us yeah. and not enough of Jesus. Well, I think, and, I, so. I think too, don't you, that, that uh, there are people who are, are doing it correctly, um, but you know, the, the story in the media is always the extremes, isn't it? And we, char- we well, get mischaracterized. Yeah. Well, of course we do, and, and we can't help that. We can only do what we do with our response, and yet being um, wise as serpents and as harmless as doves, I think we need to be wise in how we approach situations and uh, understand what people are after, um, particularly in media and, and being involved in that. I see that all the time. And so I'm, I'm just saying I think, I think there's a way that uh, people have uh, misconstrued what we're about because they've seen the wrong model. Uh, I think, and I have a, a line in the book um, about fighting the culture war, I think they've seen us uh, decide that we want to fight the culture war too much, um, and when we raise the flag higher than the cross, we have a problem. I think people can't understand that. Uh, and that provides a way in which they can all get angry uh, because they they think we're raising uh, our agendas, then they can't see the cross. And I think that's an important thing to help people understand, um, that we are to raise the cross higher than the flag. We are to exercise compassion more and forgiveness more than we do condemnation and play that game. And I think if we do that, that will help, I think, turn the tide somewhat to those who... Um, would want to look at us and, and, and not totally understand what's going on. But I think that helps. We'll continue today's conversation with my friend Joe Battaglia, the author of The Politically Incorrect Jesus, in just a moment. Our partner in bringing you these conversations each week is the Far East Broadcasting Company. For 70 years, FEBC has been faithfully proclaiming the gospel in local languages to scores of countries throughout Asia and beyond. Last year, over 2 million listeners responded to FEBC programs, an incredible number to comprehend. So to learn more about this effective means of reaching people for Christ and how you can help, just visit FirstPersonInterview.com and click on the FEBC banner. My guest today is my good friend, Joe Battaglia. Joe is a marketing guy, a communications guy in radio and so many other venues around the country. And and Joe has written a book called The Politically Incorrect Jesus, Living Boldly in a Culture of Unbelief. And Joe, I want to talk more about what you've written in the book. I want to talk about civility and dialogue in an age of political correctness because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's suffering, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to be heard and it's hard <laughs> to have a dialogue with those who just shut you down. Well, yeah. Um, the model has become ideology rather than discussion. And I've often said that you can't argue with an ideologue <laughs> because they're so intent on in getting their point across. There's no longer you know, any sense of logic or civility to it. And I, I think we see that all around us. And, and I think it's, it then becomes incumbent on us to recognize who we're talking to um, and how we're going to go about uh, discussing with people the issues of the day. Uh, I go back to how Jesus began discussions with people, um, and I talk a lot about that in the book and, and how we might as well model that with him and his, um, his uh, opportunity to turn people's thoughts toward who he was rather than who they thought 
he was or what they thought the agenda was. So there's there's lots of that, particularly in uh, finding common ground, as I call it, mm-hmm. in one of my chapters. Yeah, I read that. Um, that was very helpful. Yeah, uh, maybe I can share that story very briefly, mm-hmm. and that might help people see what I'm talking about. Make a long story short, I was invited, uh, along with another gentleman, down to Washington, D.C., because we had gotten uh, the attention uh, uh, of a particular party, might, might I say, and... Um, they found us to be non-strident evangelicals. <laughs> and what does that say about the rest of us? I'm not sure. but <laughs> Or what it says about them, I'm not sure either. <laughs> and so, um, but we were invited to uh, be part of an, uh, of an evening discussion at a very nice uh, Georgetown brownstone uh, there in D.C. And um, people were asking us questions about how to find some uh, common ground or, or whatever ground with evangelicals on certain issues. And one gentleman asked me, you know, what is our, quote, middle ground um, on abortion? Mm. To which I replied, well, there is no middle ground on abortion. And so he threw up his hands and said, see, there's no talking with you people. <laughs> I said, well, I think you're asking the wrong question. It's not a question of middle ground, because that infers that you and I are both uh, willing to compromise something that we believe so strongly in, and we and that's not really helpful to the discussion. I would rather call it common ground, where we find something of intersection where we would agree on, and within that part of the circle, we can maybe work or have a discussion about the things we do agree on, mm-hmm. and there's a big difference between that and trying to find middle ground on something that we consider inviolate, right? Yeah. Uh, there is no middle ground on abortion. No. Um, a life is a life, and no one is to summarily uh, discontinue that life. Uh, only God has that purview. But there is common ground in, in limiting the number of abortions and encouraging adoption and that kind of thing. Is that what you're talking exactly. about? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the idea is to try to help people uh, through the process and so uh, later on in that evening, um, one of the men that was there listening to this conversation asked me to have breakfast with him in the morning, and he was the head of a think tank down there. And they, uh, they were so, I guess, impressed by what we had to say that he hired me to help write a white paper for them uh, that would explain how to find the common ground with evangelicals on a number of issues. Again, without and, compromising any truth. That's right. Uh, and, and I think the reality is is that the last thing we should ever do is compromise what we believe. That's not the point. Jesus never did. He just was able to express it in a different way and come around people in a different way that allowed him to be expressive of that truth without compromising it, and they were more receptive to receiving it when he approached them on a different level. And so I was able to then write that white paper uh, for which I was paid, and I stood with them um, at a press conference at the National Press Club uh, about six months after that, uh, where they unveiled this uh, white paper. They had changed a lot of what I had said to put it into more progressive speak, if you will, 
And so, but it was fun to uh, be there and to engage with them uh, and to share the gospel in that context. Well, it was one of those rare opportunities for dialogue is what you're talking about. Exactly. And, you know, uh, from your first uh, question about how do we engage in the civil way of doing this, uh, I think people expect us, because of all that's happened, to engage in this heated debate of the culture war. And I think that's part of the issue. And part of the problem with that is that when we engage in a war, like in any war, there has to be an enemy. Christ is very clear to us that we only have one enemy. (laughs) And it is not my government. It is not the person who disagrees with me. It is not, uh, you know, uh, someone who... Uh, has some aberrant behavior that I disapprove of. Right, a different no, worldview, yeah. A different, yeah, so um, we are not to engage with the world in the war it wants to fight. We are to engage with the world in the way Jesus wants them to understand who he is and where there's forgiveness and pain. Um, I, I was doing an interview uh, with a, a mainstream um, uh, media uh, environment, shall we call it? And they they asked me about what do I think about the Caitlyn Jenner situation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they were fully expecting that um, I would have a pat evangelical answer of some sort. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it involves shaking the fist, right? <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's shaking the fist, the gnashing of teeth, and yeah, pointing of yeah. fingers. Yeah, but what did you say? Well, I said this. I said, you know. Here's my thought. My, I'm not interested in letting you know or even telling you what my personal opinion about that is because it's of no, uh, of no consequence. By uh, Jenner's own admission, there is a degree of pain and uh, soul-searching that, um, that he, she, whomever has gone through to get to this point. Um, Jesus calls us out to say, uh, I am here for whomever wants to come, whoever has a burden, my yoke is light, I'm here to relieve that pain. And the way I do that is I bring you to the cross, same as I would bring my best friend to the cross, whom I might you know, have no problem with, the same as I might bring... Uh, Donald Trump to the cross, who's extremely wealthy, or the same way I might bring um, someone who has no wealth to the cross. Um, because the reality is not what I think about the situation. Is It's more about if there's pain, if there's disillusionment, if there's confusion, if there's anything that we all agree on that we want to alleviate in this world. There is one person who wants to do that for us, and that is Jesus. I bring, so that was my response. I'm here to tell you not of what I disagree on. I'm here to tell you of where I can help find relief from pain and disillusionment and confusion and perplexity and peace for the soul. And if um, Jenner wants to go there and walk with me, I will bring him to that um, that that place, just as I would bring anybody else who came to me and said, what do you think about this? Yeah, Because well, that's the only thing I need to think about. 
that approach is going to serve all of us so well. You pick the issue. Um, you know, the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage that came down yeah. recently. I mean, that has just uh, fueled this whole debate again about Christians in the public square. And some people, uh, some well-meaning people are saying Christians should abandon the public square because we're no longer listened to. We're no longer effective there. And I don't think that's the answer at all. And I know you don't either. Yeah. The reality is that I also have a chapter in there about parable of the fertilizer. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe somebody can yeah, now think you about grew up where in I'm New going Jersey. with that. I didn't realize you had a you had need of fertilizer in New Jersey there. But. Well, when you're Italian, you all have and you grow up in an Italian family in North Jersey. You have a big garden, and you know, <clears throat> and you use fertilizer often. We okay. had a chicken coop. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm we a had, farm kid. I remember that yeah, growing up, but I didn't realize you, you had that background. So, well. Yeah. <laughs> There are another similarity between you and me, Wade. Um, and so uh, the parable here is simply this. Uh, Jesus refers us to salt as salt and light. We all know that. But I take it one step further. I'm referring to us as fertilizer. Fertilizer is meant to be spread out to enrich the land, not to be clumped together. Because when you clump fertilizer together in one spot... <laughs> it ultimately begins to fester and attract flies. And there is an aroma that emanates from it. And if you're downwind from it, you certainly can sense it. It is not too pleasant. I liken a lot of evangelicals and us fellow Christians to that clump of fertilizer where we have abandoned the call to replenish the land, not just salt it, but to replenish it, which is what fertilizer does. We have a very dry and thirsty land that needs replenishing, not just salting and keeping it, because a lot of that has been left, because the saltiness has left. As Jesus also says that, when the salt leaves, you know, or loses its saltiness, what good is it? Mm -hmm. I think that represents a lot of the individuals who have left the public square. And what else is there left to uh, occupy in the public square once the salt has left? What do we expect to happen if we are not in the marketplace? <laughs> well, the inevitable happens. It begins to be what it is. It grows toward the darkness rather than the light. And so we need to become like fertilizer and get back into the marketplace and replenish it, not just preserve it because we've been no longer there to be a preservatin. Uh, that's why I, I, I think that it's imperative that we go back into the marketplace, remain there, spread out, enrich the land, so that as fertilizer we accomplish our purposes, but uh, let us not clump together because the world will be downwind of us and smell something and it's not too pleasant. Our guest has been Joe Battaglia, whose book is titled The Politically Incorrect Jesus, Living Boldly in a Culture of Unbelief. You'll find more information about Joe's book on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Next week, our guest will be Bobby Blazier, a Nashville musician and producer who has recently discovered a box of unpublished works by Fanny Crosby and, along with others, created some new music to fit these incredible poems. So be sure to join us next week at this same time. And don't forget that our new first-person smartphone app is now available on both the iPhone and Android platforms, allowing you to download any past program and take it with you on the go. Just search for First Person Interview in either the Apple or Google Play Store to download the app. 
And anytime you'd like to leave a comment about what you hear in first person, we welcome you on Facebook at facebook.com slash first person interview. Chime in on the conversation, facebook.com slash first person interview. With thanks to FEBC and to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person.